Good morning. Good morning. Now let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and and for the truth that you have given us. And as we study your scriptures, we see and look around the world and we see all types of uh, uh, fear-inducing events transpiring. And we recognize that, that as hearts harden, your spirit slowly withdraws and chaos increases. And it's part of the events that are happening uh, to... to lead up to your your return. We pray that your spirit will be poured out on receptive hearts and minds and that we can be effective lights in this world to call the millions and billions of people who are confused and haven't hardened against you into your kingdom at this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson 12 in the quarterly. Hebrews, and the title is Receiving an Unshakable Kingdom. And the memory text is uh, Hebrews 12, 28, which reads, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. What is this unshakable kingdom? Jesus said, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is... Within you, that's right, within you. Is this kingdom that Jesus was describing, the kingdom of God within you, is this the same as the unshakable kingdom that Hebrews is talking about, or is it a different kingdom? Same kingdom, same kingdom. Um, When do we receive this unshakable kingdom? When we give our hearts to God. When we give our hearts to God. What do you think about when you read about the unshakable kingdom? Does your mind think of... The shaking? Why? Well, why not? Isn't isn't aren't the times being? Doesn't it talk about the shaking of the heavens and the earth? And and what is the shaking? When you think about the shaking times, what do you understand that to be? Shaking. Well, the people are so firmly grounded. They haven't don't have that relationship, that knowledge of God. Yep. When I but when I read this, cannot be shaken. That I thought of that. But be so firmly grounded, they cannot be moved. Okay. So what is the shaking? I agree with you. Good. <laughs> what is in the shaking events, events that shake people out of their complacency, out of the routines and the mundane things, things happening that uh, stir people up and, and, and they have to make some decisions of what's going on and what are they going to do and how are they going to respond and where are they going to find safety, where are they going to find security, what methods are they going to prefer, how are they going to treat others that shakes them out. And people, because there's three groups in the world until Christ comes, and then there's only two. And the three groups are those that are hardened against God. You would call them the tares or the goats. Those are sealed to God, the sheep or the wheat. And then that group in the middle that hasn't settled either direction yet. That group in the middle settles one way or the other before Christ comes, doesn't it? So when Christ comes, there's only two groups. And the shaking are events that cause that group in the middle... To make a decision, which way are they going? Yeah. Just like when you, you know, what's the, 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 um, you take the wheat and you throw it up and you get all the chaff and the. So consider this quote from Youth Instructor, February 2, 1893. What do you think of this? Uh, make it the law of your life from which no temptation or side interest shall cause you to turn. To honor God. What kind of law would that be? Is it a rule that we must obey? Or is it an expression of love, loyalty, understanding, commitment, integrity, responsibility, deciding on what kind of person you're going to be and how you're going to live your life? Is that what this is? Make it a law of your life, which no temptation or interest can cause you to turn to honor God. Because, and why would we make this the honor of life here? The, the law of our life, here's what, what the author says. Because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As a redeemed, free, moral agent, ransomed by an infinite price, pause, when you hear language, ransomed by an infinite price, what law lens are you hearing that, those words through? If you hear it through human law, are you thinking, ransom, uh, pay my debts, buy me back from Satan, pay the father a blood price so he doesn't have to kill me. Uh, These are the ways you think of ransom? Or do you think through design law 
And ransom is the price necessary to free one who's held in bondage or held hostage. And what is it that holds sinners bondage? Lies about God. Lies about God that we believe. And so what would the price be that would be needed to free us from that bondage? The truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But that's not the only thing that holds us in bondage. What else holds us in bondage? Our own carnal natures. Our own carnal natures fear selfishness with which we're born. And thus we need a new heart and right spirit. We need a new nature. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the price to free us or ransom us was the truth to win us to trust and a new heart and right spirit, a new human nature that Christ perfectly developed for us that we receive as a free gift. Not in a legal sense. It's no longer I, but Christ lives in me. So this is the price. So there's where, but notice, as redeemed, a free moral agent ransomed at an infinite price, God calls upon you to assert your liberty and employ your God-given powers as a free subject of the kingdom of heaven. Boy, we've heard a lot about this type of behavior the last two years, haven't we? Let's be free moral agents and assert our liberty. No, you must obey the authorities. You must conform. You must do this or lose your job or lose or, or lo- lose your freedoms in some way. Well, these are the principles of God. Asserting your, your liberty to employ a free moral agent, does that mean we act out of obligation? No, it doesn't. It's not rule-keeping. It's not under threat. If we don't, God will punish. That's not free moral agent. It's out of love for God. Knowing and cherishing what he did to free us from fear, free us from selfishness, free us from the lies that bound us. Oh, I appreciate that. It wins our hearts so that we are no longer bound. We're not a slave to that system anymore. With the quote, be no longer under the thraldom of sin. Thraldom. What's a thraldom? It's a delusion. It's a false belief system. You're in the thrall of the system, and it's all this. Okay. Can you? During COVID, I'm telling you, the world has been in the delusion that there's this virus that's a that's a mortal threat to the most majority of us. And if we don't take all these actions, we could all die. It was a delusion. It was thraldom. It was a lie. Less than zero point one percent of people were ever under threat from this thing. Not of catching it, of having serious harm from it. It was always less threatening than a seasonal flu. Always, from the very beginning. Still is. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. They're misinformed. Thraldom. Where was I here? Be no longer under the thraldom of sin, but as a loyal subject of the King of Kings, prove your loyalty to God. How do you prove your loyalty to God? By rule-keeping? Eating the right foods? By loving devotion to living his methods, revealing his kingdom. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. By not using the methods of the world to pursue justice. Continue with the quote. Through Jesus Christ, uh, though, yeah, through Jesus Christ show that you are worthy of the sacred trust with with which the Lord has honored you in bestowing upon you life and grace. You are to refuse to be in subjection to the power of evil. Refuse it. We refused the mandates. We got censored. We had some of our videos taken down. Fortunately, we live in Tennessee, which is a mostly free state, didn't have nearly the mandates of some of these other places. Continue with the quote. Oh, we refuse to be in subjection to the powers of evil. 
Evil powers, lies, fear, selfishness, coercion, compelling power. We don't surrender our thinking. We don't live selfishly. We don't seek to control and coerce other people. We don't practice those methods. Continue with the quote. As soldiers of Christ, we must deliberately and intelligently accept his terms of salvation under every circumstance, every circumstance, including a pandemic, cherish right principles and act upon them. Do you understand fear causes people to exchange the principles of God for the principles of the world? That's what fear does. Soldiers of Christ. Are we in a war? What kind of war are we in? For hearts and minds. There you go. Uh, I wrote a blog this week, Is a Just War Possible? I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it where we contrast the ways of the world, there is no earthly war that is ever just. They are all unjust. They all harm, and both sides always have injustices perpetrated on both sides. Always, Some will do more injustices than the other side, but in every war you will find examples of injustices being done on every side. And the people engaging in war can never engage in human war without injuring essentially every person who's engaging in the war. Yes? What about revolutionary war when we're trying to break away from the British Empire? Yes, and every human war is an unjust war. Every human war, it's human systems against human systems. What, hap- what do you think happened to the people that were killing other people? Did they have any soul injury, injury to their hearts, minds, characters? You can't engage in war without injuring. And so is, is the warfare, and this is when we look at it through the human law system and the world system, we justify these tactics. Do we find that the British Empire treating the colonies was equally oppressive, more oppressive, less oppressive than the Roman Empire was to the Judea and the Israelites when Jesus was alive. They were free to practice their religion. So which was more oppressive to the the, uh, colonists? Were the colonists being more oppressed by the British or were the Jews being more oppressed by Rome? Well, were there were there a lot of wars being fought between the Jews and the Romans? The Romans lived with the Jews, and the Jews were able to practice their religion. The, the Jews were in constant rebellion against Rome. And what happened in AD 70? With the Zealots, but they were a small group. It was like all the colonists versus the British versus the Zealots, you know, which was a smaller group. Of... So what would be the justification for the war? They wanted religious liberty. That's why they left and came here and got it. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have religious liberty. So, so you think you think the uh, the Revolutionary War was because they couldn't practice their religion? That was the main reason why they left. They wanted religious freedom. Uh, th- that was why they left Britain. And Britain. no, 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 no. The, pu- the some of the Puritans might have, but the colonies. That was not their reason for the rebellion, as far as I understand history. The 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 Americas were a place that people who were leaving. The oppression of the Dark Ages church fled. There's no question about that. But the Revolutionary War was about taxes and money and representation. And the and and the and there was religious elements to it. There's no question. I, I wrote about that. The Bill of Rights, because of, because of the history of the Dark Ages Church oppressing people's freedoms, the Bill of Rights have many liberties that were established in them to uh, insulate people from the abuse of the three main powers that abuse people. And the three main powers that exploit us are the government itself. That's why our system has the checks and balances, supposedly, with three branches that can, and we have representation, we can elect our officials and so forth. Um, the uh, separation of the church and state and to protect us from the aristocracies, the, the big businesses. These are the three exploitive powers through history. And our Constitution and government was set up to actually empower people over these organizations to prevent the people from being exploited like they've been in every society in human history. This was the primary purpose. It was about human exploitation much more than it was about simple religious liberty. But liber- religious freedom was part of the civil freedoms that were actually established there as well. 
Was it a righteous war? Righteous. Was it a just war? Did it establish the kingdom of God? Did it result in uh, uh, liberty and justice for all? Did it? No. Even after the Civil War? After the Civil War, and there's no slavery, did it result in liberty and justice for all? The principles espoused were good principles. But what, what, what has actually happened in practice, and this is the point, every human government uses Satan's methods, and every human government does injustice. And the big trap of Satan is to do injustice, incite outrage, get you to seek to make it better by using his methods. Jesus is described in Scripture as being despised and rejected by why? What, what, think, put yourself, understand. He came, we understand, he came as our Savior. He came to the people who for hundreds of years, multiple generations, have been planning and looking for their deliverer and Messiah. And when he came, they despised him and rejected him. Why? Not what they expected. No, because, but, but, but why did they not want this, he, this type of Savior? What kind of a Savior did they want? Yes, because why? What was happening? They were under oppression. They were under oppression. And that was unjust and they were mistreated. And that injustice inspired in them a desire to set it right, to fix it, to destroy the enemy. And Jesus came and said, love your enemies. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My followers would fight. And they despised him for it. I'm telling you, the world is being set up for the same thing right now. All types of... Satan has his two systems. Remember my blog, King of the North, King of the South? How they war against each other and both sides do injustices against each other and they inflame a sense of outrage in people. It's wrong and it is wrong. Absolutely. This is what Satan does purposely. Because he's trying to bait the righteous into seeking to set wrong the right by joining one of his systems and using his methods. That's the trap. And that's where, in the final end, the deception will be so subtle that if it were possible, the elect would be deceived because they're looking for a savior like the Jews were 2,000 years ago. And those who actually advance the kingdom of God will be despised and rejected of men. Is it possible to say in... Because I'm, I'm hearing like yeah. his questions are, and I'm kind of resonating with it. Rather than joining a war, standing up for truth, absolutely, and being, in, in a sense, you're still taking a side, but you're not, um, you're not joining a force. Did you read my blog this week? I read half of it. Okay, so in there, I talk about it's never just human wars are never just. Ending human wars are just. Ending a human war is just. And so the righteous people in the levers of power of various governments, if you're a righteous person, somebody, somebody starts a war, the righteous action is to do anything you can to end it as quickly as possible. So if you were a Ukrainian today, mm-hmm. what would you be doing to end the war that seems like it's something that you have no power over? I, I don't have enough facts on the circumstances of the motivations behind the people at the war to know how to bring it to an end. So... Um, I really can't speak to the actions that could be taken um, by the people who, uh, there. I can tell you, though, um, this war this war was was enabled by the current leadership of the United States. Yeah. Uh, I quote one of the famous Roman generals. I can't remember his name right now, but if you want peace, prepare for war. War, and, and that's because in a sinful world. Unrighteous people do not act out of love for others. Unrighteous people act out of fear and selfishness. So unrighteous people will seek to exploit and take advantage and go to war because they want what you have and they want to control more people. And so what stops an unrighteous group from going to war is the threat that they will lose more than they gain if they go to war. And so in a uh, righteous response then, the righteous understanding the, the sinfulness of the human heart 
you have a strong defense and an intolerance for stepping across the line with a quick reaction that minimizes and stops and prevents war. And that's why when you have strong leadership controlling the U.S. forces, uh, we don't actually have these types of things happening. But when you have weak leadership... Then what? And you enable this type of stuff, and you send the message. Well, we'll send some sanctions. <laughs> okay. Then you say, okay, there's not the, the consequences are not too severe. Then the evil go to war. So the righteous respond. And I can tell you, the actions and decisions happening in the in, in our country right now have weakened this country. Yeah. And it and it's and it's strategically purposeful by the leadership. It's not accidental. It is purposeful. Uh, you, you and, and think about this. Uh, in the news headlines right now, everybody's war, war, war. Okay, do you understand? We, we're getting rid of tens of thousands of healthy soldiers, sailors, airmen because they wouldn't get the jab. They're being they're being ter- years of experience, officers and and, and 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 NCOs that have years of backbone of our, our military are being eliminated because they wouldn't take a jab that has no ability to pre- prevent them from getting the disease in the first place. Do you do that if you want to retain your fighting strength? No. no, with an illness that actually shows no harm to people at that age and doesn't reduce them in the in the in the field, they, the whole, every argument they've made is fraudulent. The purpose of doing it is to weaken the American military. Absolutely. How do you think? Uh, since we, I mean, we're getting way off topic. <laughs> but you see evil in the world, and I have a bunch of stuff to go over in the notes that are really going to blow your mind. I hope we get to them. Um, because there's some really important things about the New Jerusalem that I wanted to share with you. But, but what, what's happening in the world, and what, what else has enabled this? Um, have you noticed your gas prices? It was under $2 a gallon year and, year and two months ago, before the current administration took over. We were energy independent as a country, producing all the energy this country purchased, and all the money we purchased went back into this country. All the money we spent on it went back into this country, into investors, into, 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 into Americans' uh, pockets. And the first thing this administration did was shut down our oil and, and gas production and started spending billions of dollars a day from Russia. The money that's funding this war came from Americans buying oil and gas from Russia. We're paying the Russians so they can attack. We're basically paying the Russians, and we've weakened the military. This are, these are not accidents, folks. And most people, they just go along. They have, oh, it's bad. They invaded them. Oh, and, and, and do you understand one of the reasons why this is, has been permitted? And I say permitted. This current administration permitted this. It was important that people stop looking at COVID. The whole two-year COVID thing was a scam. It's a real virus. It's a real virus. Very mild illness. Weak people that are already struggling to stay alive are very vulnerable to dying from it. So the very old and those with multiple serious chronic illnesses, it's less than 0.1% of the population were ever vulnerable to it. It's always been true. From the very moment it was released in Wuhan, they knew this. The very first outbreak, they knew this, but they lied. They've lied all along. But, it, but these types of lies take time for the evidence to eventually reveal. And what we now have is we know that the mandates and the, uh, and the, and the actions that were forced upon us have killed hundreds of thousands of more people and are still killing because the consequences will go on for now decades and generations. The consequences will go on. Hundreds of thousands of more people have died because of what they made us do than if they would have done nothing. Millions likely when it's all calculated. And it's important to the people in power that you don't realize that. A study came out in England just this last week. See, see how many heard about this? It came out just last week. In England, from in the, in the 30 days, mid-January to mid-February, four out, of five, four out of every five people who died from COVID were triple vaccinated. Four out of every five triple vaccinated. Did you all hear that news? Most people didn't because why? They don't want you to hear that news. I, 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 went, I went down one of the news websites, major, major news outlet website, just two days ago, rolling down it, and you know they have the headlines and you can roll down the website and see the headlines. 34 out of the 35 headlines were about Ukraine. Wow. And the one that wasn't was about the State of the Union address. <laughs> Prior to the invasion... At least 50% of everything you read was about COVID. COVID's gone. The oxygen is shut up. It's sucked out. They don't want you thinking because they know when you see the evidence, you'll be outraged. And we have an election coming up. 
And what you're going to need to believe is that the current administration is against this, this horrible Russian dictator type person who just wants to abuse the world and, and you should vote for this leader so he can protect our freedoms that he just took from you. <laughs> it is such a con job. Yes, I feel sorry for the people in the Ukraine. It's horrible what's happening, what they're going through. It has no direct effect on America at all. Zero. None. Understand that. No direct effect on America at all. Yes? Or if you want to share the gospel there, because in Russia, they're more, you know, they have stricter rules on, on religion. So there's actually less light if Russia does take over Ukraine for the gospel to spread. So the re- one of the primary reasons the, the Russian people are going and Putin is going to do this is a religious war. The, the Russian people um, uh, see themselves as the backbone of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, the Russian Orthodox Church, which started in 988 A.D. with, uh, um, with Vladimir uh, of Rus, who married the um, daughter of the Byzantine Empire's uh, um, uh, Byzantine Emperor's uh, daughter in a deal for the, the Russians or the Rus people to help him fight off an enemy. In order to do that, he had to convert to Christianity, which he did, and he got the wife of the, uh, I mean, the daughter of the emperor. Uh, and so it, it elevated his status, and it established the Russian Orthodox Church in Kiev. And so they've always viewed Kiev, Ukraine, as the heart and the soul of the Russian Orthodox Church. And when Ukraine got independence a few years ago, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke off from the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church leaders rejected that and said, no, you're still part of our church. Vladimir uh, Putin uh, was, was raised Russian Orthodox by his mother, even though his father was a Communist Party leader, baptized in secret. And he sees himself as the savior of the Russian Orthodox Church against the influx of leftist liberalism, homosexuality, LGBTQ, um, all this progressivism. And so he sees that there there is a close marriage between um, the Russian Orthodox Church and patriotic Russia, just like American Christians and patriotic Americans. They've merged the two. And so going into the Ukraine is part of the process of reclaiming the heart and soul of the Russian Orthodox people and church because it has its, its heart in Kiev where it started. And so this isn't really primarily about any of the stuff that you've been told. It, it, it still has a deep religious roots to it. And this is why sanctioning is not going to make a difference because he sees himself as really saving Christianity as he understands it. But you're not told that either. Boy. I'm going to skip the rest of that quote because I need to move on to some other interesting things. We're going to skip, we're going to skip, we're going to skip, we're going to skip, and we're down now. Uh, now we're going to go up to Sunday's lesson. Uh, Hebrews uh, 12, 22 through 24, uh, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. First paragraph in the lesson says, Hebrews affirms that we have come to Mount Zion and participate in a great celebration. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in the festal gathering. We have come through faith in the person of our representative, Jesus. In this celebration, we find an innumerable host of angels, God himself and Jesus, who is the center of the celebration. We come as part of the assembly of the firstborn who's enrolled in heaven. Our names are enrolled in the books of heaven where God's professed people are listed. <coughs> With our social security numbers? I mean, when you hear names listed, what do you understand that to mean? Yeah. Uh, character, individuality, identity, personhood. This isn't a name like we list names in books. No. Um, and when it refers to heavenly Jerusalem and Mount Zion, are they the same thing? We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of our living God. Are, are they all th- three ways of saying the same thing? Yes. And what do we understand about the New Jerusalem? Do we have any other insights regarding it? Let's look at Revelation 21, 1 and 2. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Is this a different city than the one we just read about in in Hebrews, or is it the same city? Same city. Okay, good. And what does it mean then? The city is, is, is a bride prepared beautifully dressed for her husband. Dressed in what? Righteousness, the white robes of righteousness. Okay. Well, then what would the city be built out of? People. Let's keep reading. Keep this in mind. Keep in mind lesson 10 that we did just a couple of weeks ago about Jesus going to heaven to prepare a place. Keep that in the back of your mind. Let's skip to verse 9, 21, 9 through 14. And we're going to break this one out. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. What is this? Who is the bride of Christ? Is Christ marrying inanimate materials? Bricks and mortar and gold and silver? So what's being described then? What would the new Jerusalem then be representative of or constructed out of? Do you remember other Bible texts that says we are living stones being built together into a house for the Lord? Is that what this is describing? It's Christ in heaven. And what, and what is a house for the Lord? A sanctuary or a dwelling place? I go to prepare a dwelling place for you? Hmm. Something about Christ's work in heaven? Preparing a dwelling place for us related to the new Jerusalem, which is a dwelling place for God? Well, continue the next verse. The, the new holy city, Jerusalem, come down from heaven. It's shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like very precious jewels, like jasper, clear as crystal. What is the glory of God? Is it primary photons? <laughs> or is it character? And what are the righteous called to do in the first of the three angels' messages? Be in awe of God, fear God, and... Give glory to him. The city, which is the bride, comes down shining with the glory of God. Does this just mean that the people have been honed and fitted for the building and that they shine brightly with the Lord's glory? Or does it mean that the city comes down with inanimate materials with great LED lighting? LED stands for living, eternal, divine lighting. continuing on it had great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 angels at gates and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of israel there were three gates on the east on the three on the north three on the south and three on the west what is being described in the old testament at the people camped in the in the around the sanctuary how did they camp? Three on the sides, with the Levites in between, representing the Levites represent the priesthood of believers, and the other tribes represent all the unconverted peoples of the world that are ministered to by the Levites and brought into sanctuary or dwelling with the Lord. And so the gates represent... That peoples from all walks of life, east, west, north, and south, from every culture, every tribe, nation, kindred, and people, as it said earlier in the scripture, in Revelation, come in. This is what it's saying. So the city is made up of people from all walks of life. And why would it have the names of the tribes? Because those who sit down with the lamb at the feast are the children described as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to be a child of Abraham means you have the faith of Abraham. To be the child of Isaac means that you have been miraculously reborn from your dead, being dead in trespass and sin as he was miraculously born from a dead womb. And that like Jacob, after we're reborn, we, with God, wrestle with selfishness in our lives and overcome.
We're the children of Abraham by faith, being reborn like Isaac, and wrestle with God's power to overcome like Jacob. And they're the ones. That's why they come through with the names of the tribes of Israel. It's not literal genetics. And then the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. This this Bible's given a lot of clues here that this is really probably not built out of inanimate materials. So the bride of Christ, you guys said the church, we should have some Bible reference for that. Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Husband loves your wife as, as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her. Keep that in mind. Come back to that. Cleansing her by washing with the water through the word and to present to her her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So who's the bride of Christ? Then what does it mean if we're the bride of Christ that the bride is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? But they still have a Jerusalem that have walls and because the the prophecy said that that she she saw the the house, the mansions. So Revelation 21.16 reads, and this is the New English translation, Now the city is laid out as a square. Its length and width the same. He measured the city, measuring its rod with a rod, 1,400 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. So what shape is it? It's a cube. It's a cube. Like the most holy. That's what I was about to say. Anything else? And he's he's already got there. That's right. What was the city made out of? If you read in verse 18, it's made out of gold. We are to buy the gold more precious from Christ. Yes. Okay. Gold tried in the fire. Mm -hmm. The most holy place, what was it covered in? Gold. So the similarities, most holy place, New Jerusalem. Both are cubes. I don't know if you knew the shape of the most holy place, a cube. Both are gold. Both are where you find God dwelling. God dwells in the most holy place, the Shekinah. God dwells in the New Jerusalem. Both are where the high priest does his ministry. Uh, And both, the covenant box in the Old Testament sanctuary, symbolically representing a universe united, through Christ, the lid, the angels touching, the Shekinah touching, and the and the uh, redeemed souls that are represented in the box, all touching, all united in one head, Jesus Christ, and then the New Jerusalem, the universe restored, as we just read. All things have been made new. So prior to the coming of Christ, he receives his kingdom. Prior to his coming, he receives his kingdom, which is primarily, is it primarily concerned with inanimate objects or with people. When does this wedding occur? Between the bride and the bridegroom. At the second coming or before? It would have to be before, wouldn't it? Yes, the wedding occurs before. And at a wedding, do people who get married have intimacy? I don't mean simply physical intimacy. Intimacy. Do they share their hearts with each other? Do they come into union at a wedding, the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom? Do the two become one? And in Old English, we would call that at one. Or a tone. That's how they would pronounce it. Like when you're all by yourself, you're not all one, you're alone. You atone, or the process of the wedding is called atonement. When the two become one. Do we realize 
that the marriage of the lamb receiving his kingdom, which, and remember what type of kingdom this is? It's where? Within you, the kingdom of love. Does the kingdom of love, can you get that by might and power? Not by might nor by power, but by the... So the kingdom of love is a relational kingdom, a commitment of heart, that love and trust are unified on the same principles. It's a merging of minds. Did you realize that this marriage, this coming into unity with Christ, him receiving his kingdom, which means he's coming into oneness with his bride, is the same as the investigative judgment and the Day of Atonement. They're the same event. The wedding, Jesus receiving his kingdom, is Christ bringing to perfect oneness his church, cleansing, we just read it, cleansing her with the washing of the word. Didn't we just read that in Ephesians? What do we understand the investigative judgment to be? Cleansing of the sanctuary. It's the cleansing of the bride, bringing us into unity with him. Or in other words, the washing or the resetting or the purging or the cleansing of our data sets, our individualities, our characters, so that we are one with him, so that we can actually stand in his physical presence when he comes. Consider this, Revelation 3.12. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write upon him a new name. What is Revelation saying? What is the new name? New character. character. And the new character is the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. We are brought into unity. Cleansing of character, Christ-likeness within, being married to him, being at one with him. And I found this uh, quote connected to the Revelation 3.12 that I just read from Ellen White out of Christ's Triumphant, page 227. Never will the human family, redeemed by the example of the sent, with a capital S, sent, Jesus, uh, the sent of God, the only begotten of the Father, understand and fully comprehend the terrible conflict waged with deceptive, alluring power and concealed deadly hatred by Satan against our Lord when he lived upon the earth. After the battle of the great day of God shall take place, when the power of rebellion shall forever be broken. I'm interrupting the middle of a sentence. After the battle of the great day of God shall take place, when the powers of rebellion is forever broken. I'm breaking right in the middle because I want you to, what law lens are you hearing that through? After the battle of the great day of the Lord takes place and the power of rebellion is forever broken. Might, power, iron, ruling, killing, destroying. He's coming with vengeance. Is that what's how you're hearing? The battle of the great day of the Lord. Which law lens are we hearing it through? What kind of battle? What are the weapons that God uses to win his warfare? Not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. Do you remember the same author wrote in Desire of Ages, 759, that God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this? Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power sound only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests in goodness, mercy, and love, and presentation of these principles are the means to be used. So if God wasn't going to do it in the beginning, do you think he's going to turn to those methods and principles in the end? So this idea of the battle, the great battle, the day of the Lord, when rebellion is finally and forever broken, what weapons are used to break rebellion? Truth and love. Truth, love, operating where? In In hearts and minds. So let's finish the sentence now. It's forever broken, and Christ's mediatorial work in its magnitude is represented so plainly that all the redeemed of God's family shall, with clear comprehension, understand the mission of his Son as the mediatorial remedy to make the fallen race repentant, humble, meek, reclaimed order of beings, a reclaimed order of beings. Then there will be seen developed the difference between the persons that serve God and those that don't serve him. We will see developed the difference. What does that mean, developed the difference? 
What methods are we going to use in how we treat others? Maturity. Maturity of character. That's right. Truth, love, freedom. We don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Yes? I, I see how we fight the war, or how the battle is fought here on the earth with love and truth and those things. I'm just thinking about how do you picture that the war was fought in heaven between when Satan, when Lucifer was cast out? Yeah, it was, it was truth. It, it, was, it was not force. It was truth and love. And Christ said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all into myself. Uh, now it's time of judgment. Now Satan is cast out. And that's what we're talking about. Cast out. Cast out from where? He was cast out at the cross. By what? Truth. And if you read Ellen White's comments on those verses, she says that at the cross, Satan was exposed as a murderer. And all sympathy was lost from him. No longer could he tempt the angels. Why? Because God has a force shield and won't let him? No, because the truth had finally been exposed to the point they understood the liar and they understood God's true character and none of his lies and deception had any power on them anymore. They were settled and sealed. That's how the war was was won. Continue on with the quote. Rebellion will exist in our world until, until in heaven are spoken the words, it is done. Rebellion in the church is caused by its members feeling opposed to God, and to his terms of salvation. I don't like his terms. I like my terms better. Human beings want abundant room to express themselves and to attract attention to themselves. They do not know or understand that they are working out the the plans of Satan. If they refuse to see and to become enlightened, if they refuse to be instructed, they reject the mediatorial remedy that has been given to save the sinner, not in sin, but from sin. Wow, get your mind around that. Christ came to save us from sin, not in sin. The whole, that, that statement alone eviscerates and destroys the entire penal legal substitutionary uh, theology of atonement. That entire system says that when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are legally declared righteous even though you're not. You're saved from the punishment of sin, but you're not actually saved from sin. You still live in sin. No, we become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Romans 6.16, the word obedience in Romans 6.16 is the word hupakoe. First half, hypo, like hypoglycemic, hypotension means low. And acue, from where we get acoustic or acoustical, it means to listen or to hear. Like a parent says to their child, are you listening to me? Or you better listen. It's not meaning you better hear the words I'm saying. You don't mean that. What do you mean is you better do and follow. And so biblical obedience is about a humble willingness to listen and be instructed and out of your errors, out of the distortions, out of the false beliefs, into the truth of God. And the saved are those who have a heart that can that love the truth and can be instructed. They're the obedient. But this word obedience in our modern language means rule-keeping or behavior, not attitude of heart to be instructed and follow. That's true biblical obedience. And thus, notice what she said here. If they refuse to see and become enlightened, if they refuse to be instructed. I don't want... Listen, I know the 28 fundamentals. I've got my Bible proof text. I know what I believe. And you know what? Don't confuse me with truth. I can't be instructed. The wicked are lost, it says in Thessalonians, because they refuse to be instructed. They did not love the truth and thus be saved. They have their theologies. They have their rules. They have their systems that must be adhered to. When we come and reason, we come and reason together. Okay, Those who refuse to reason, to examine evidence, to pursue truth because they have a love to grow. They know they're finite. They know that not everything that they understand may be the most accurate and it can be improved upon. And they want to grow in that truth. They have hearts willing to be led where the truth leads. They use an integrative approach, looking for harmony in all the threads of truth. These are the people who are going to be in heaven. They're the obedient. So for the finishing that quote, for the express purpose of saving sinners was the remedial work of, of Christ. Remedial. You know what remedial means, right? Healing. Okay? Here's another quote, early writings, 251. 
Jesus sent his angels to direct the minds of the disappointed ones to the most holy place where he had gone to cleanse the sanctuary and to make a special atonement for Israel. Jesus told the angels that all who found him would understand the work which he was to perform. I saw that while Jesus was in the most holy place, he would be married to the new Jerusalem. We just read out of Revelation that the bride is clearly the new Jerusalem, but the bride is also the church, but he's also cleansing the sanctuary, but he's also cleansing his bride. Do you again understand the wedding? This is all metaphorical language. Jesus is uniting himself in heart, in mind, in character with his saints through all history by going through their data sets, their stored individualities, and if you don't have this, I would encourage you to get this, okay? the heavily sanctuary investigative judgment for the modern world, where we explain in detail and give the references and supports that what Jesus is doing is he is preparing every heart and mind who's trusted him to be ready to stand in his physical presence when they're resurrected and when we're translated. So the thief on the cross who died trusting Jesus, he does not arise as a thief. Martin Luther, the great reformer who hated the Jews, does not rise with hate in his heart for the Jews. That's been cleansed. That's been purged. Why? Because they died trusting Jesus and asked him, Lord, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Anything you find defective that I was unable to actually see, understand, uh, and, and work out through your grace while I was alive, fix it while I'm asleep. That's the investigation. That's preparing the bride. That's the wedding. That's coming united, bringing all of us at one with him. Someone asked the question, when you hear the idea of the wedding of the lamb, Jesus being married to his bride. And you visualize that image. And then you hear of the investigative judgment. Do you get the same emotional and attitudinal response to those two things? They're the same thing, guys. They're the same event. Isn't the investigative judgment the day of atonement? And isn't atonement bringing the two into one at one minute? And isn't marriage the two we just read in Ephesians become one? And isn't the bride of Christ the Jerusalem, but also the church? And isn't the new Jerusalem have all the characteristics of the most holy place? The, the threads have always been there. Why have we not put these pieces together before? Because we have an imposed law view, and we've been taught it's illegal accounting in record books. Yes. Will we continue to develop our characters in heaven? So I guess you'll have to define, we will continue to grow and develop. But my understanding of when you say developed character, we have to parse what you mean. Do you mean, will we continue to struggle to overcome fear, selfishness, sin? No, we won't. We will be settled, and we will all love God and others more than self. We will all practice the principles of integrity, honesty, openness, loyalty, faithfulness, that those principles in our character will have been settled. There won't be any um, transformation of character going on in heaven. Uh, does that mean, though, we won't grow in the depths of our love for others, the depths of our love for God, the, the insights and awareness of how love functions and work, that we won't grow in our experience of love as we carry out acts of love to others in heaven, uh, that our devotion and loyalty grows deeper? All those things will be true. The qual so, so in that sense, we will absolutely grow for alternity in these elements and aspects of our character, but we won't um, be um, suddenly become loving when we weren't loving, if, if that makes sense, so... But if all this is true, what do we do with Great Controversy 426? In the summer and autumn of 1844, the proclamation, Behold, the bridegroom comes, was given. Two classes represented by the wise and foolish virgins were, developed, were then developed. One class who looked with joy to the Lord's appearing and one and who had been diligently preparing to meet him, another class that was influenced by fear and acting from impulse had been satisfied with the theory of truth, but were destitute of the grace of God. Pause right now. First thing to notice in this, in this author's writings, time frame, 1844, the bridegroom is coming. What else would this author say happened in 1844? She is telling us that they're the same event. The bridegroom coming to marry his bride and the investigative judgment are the same event. Does that blow your mind? Mm -hmm. The parable of the ten virgins, it distinguishes two classes. One class looking with joy. 
The other class looking with fear. One class diligently study, the other class satisfied with the theories of truth, but destitute of grace. What's the difference between them? One class actually has intimacy with God. They know him. They love him. They trust him. Uh, And the thought of his return fills them with joy. The other class, they have a theory of salvation, the doctrine of the second coming. But they don't actually know him. They don't actually love Jesus. Uh, There is no unity, at one minute, no intimacy. And the thought of his returning fills them with fear because they focus on the on the trials, the tribulations, the, the pandemics, the, the wars, and, and, and they become frightened. But those who actually know him and love him, think about this, folks. Your most loved person in your life, your child that you love with all your heart, your spouse that you love with all your heart, and, 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 and you know they're coming back, but, but to get here, there's, there's trials or difficulties. You've got to go, you've got to go through a desert. You go without water, you whatever, but you're going to be, when you get through the other side, you're going to be with your loved one. Do you even care about all the trials? You look with joy. Those who have this, the wise, look with joy. Those who don't, they look with fear. It's the intimacy, knowing he's coming, he's coming. The bridegroom is coming. Those with fear rely on the legal theories of payments, but they don't have unity of heart. In the, continue with the quote. In the parable, when the bridegroom came, they that were ready went out to, uh, went with him into the marriage. The coming of the bridegroom here brought to view takes place before the marriage. The marriage represents the reception of Christ to his kingdom. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the capital and representative of the kingdom is called the bride, the lamb's wife. Said the angel, come see, look, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He carried me in spirit and showed me the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Clearly then the bride represents the holy city and the virgins that go out to meet the bride are symbolic of the church. In Revelation, the people of God are said to be the guests to the marriage supper. Revelation 19.9. If guests, then they cannot also be the bride. What? Didn't we just settle this? What's going on? I'm confused. Are you confused now? <laughs> Does the Bible describe the, 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 describe the, the righteous as guests? Does the Bible also, and I've already given those texts to you, describe us as the bride? The Bible uses both. It describes both. It's not either or. So you have to say in which description, in which place are we being described? You see, the Bible uses the same symbols or multiple symbols for the same thing multiple times. You know, the, uh, the serpent represents. But what about when they looked at the brass serpent in the desert? Who is it representing there? Okay. Yeah, so you find symbols can be used. You have to actually think contextually what's going on here. In this particular parable, the, the parable, the guests are not the bride, but does that mean the saints are not the bride of Christ? No, we're still the bride of Christ. So what's being described? What's the point? And let's keep going on. Christ has stated by the prophet Daniel uh, that will that. Uh, by the prophet Daniel, will receive from the ancient of days uh, in heaven dominion and glory and a kingdom. He will receive the new Jerusalem, the capital of his kingdom, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Having received the kingdom, he will come in his glory as king of kings and lord of lords for the redemption of his people who are to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the table of his kingdom. Remember, we talked about what it means to be Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. Yeah, Abraham. Uh, to partake the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there is the marriage, and then there is the marriage supper, the celebration. What constitutes the marriage? Okay, you could say there is the marriage ceremony, and then there's the honeymoon, <laughs> the celebration, okay? What constitutes the marriage? The ceremony. The ceremony, that's right. The commitment, the hearts being united in committed love to each other. That's when, that's the marriage. And when does, when do the saved become united or at one with Christ? Before or at the second coming? So we are, we are, the atonement or at one that happens and that's, but we are not there physically in heaven while it's happening. We are there by faith. So we continue to read. The proclamation, behold, the bridegroom comes in summer 1844, led thousands to expect the immediate advent of the Lord. At the appointed time, the bridegroom came not to earth, as people expected, but to the ancient of days in heaven, to the marriage, the reception of his kingdom. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. They that uh, were not to be present, uh, they were not, they were not to be present in person at the marriage, for it takes place in heaven while they were upon earth. 
The followers of Christ are to wait for their Lord when he returns from the wedding, but they are to understand his work and to follow him by faith as he goes in before God. It is in this sense they are said to go into the marriage. So we go in with our heart's commission, our devotion. We become united with him. We are not there physically. That's what that means. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the way you have uh, revealed truth to us, for your principles. At this time in earth's history, Lord, the devil's forces are, are on the move and they're inciting all types of injustices and wrongs. And, and we're so tempted to, to become angry and want to set things right. We, we pray for your wisdom, for your, for your heart, for your discernment, that we can move to interfere with the devil's work but through your methods and principles and not get sucked into trying to make things right by using the same methods that your enemies use your enemy used lord we thank you so much now and we pray that you will come soon in your holy name amen